Uh, we have another one of our uh, heavy subjects today. Um, so I'm going to ask again that everyone just pray um, as we get into deep into God's word. Um, these are not easy sermons to prepare or to present. I do want you to know that up front. Um, and so I humbly come before you asking for the Holy Spirit and for your support. Our scripture reading, um, Hebrews 9 and verse 27, the Bible says, and, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. Our message this Sabbath is entitled, The Surety of the Judgment. The surety of the judgment. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word. Once again, Lord, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Lord, it makes no sense for people to see or hear Eric Walsh. What we need today, Lord, is to hear a word from the throne room of grace. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon this place in double, triple portion, Lord, and send angels to accept that excel in wisdom and strength to be given charge over this place. And Lord, I, in the name of Jesus and by the power of his blood, I cast out the enemy now. Move him far away and remove the distractions from our minds that we may hear and see the great truths of scripture on the subject of the judgment. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to go straight to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. One of my favorite Bible stories. I don't, I'm not going to get too deep into the story except to set the stage for the talk today. Um, uh, this is Daniel had been in um, captivity now into his adulthood. You remember he got there with Nebuchadnezzar. We're now going to deal with Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, uh, Belshazzar. Um, and this is an interesting story because his grandson is kind of wilding out. The Bible says, and Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king, his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which were at, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. This was intentional. Belshazzar asked for these vessels because he knew where the vessels came from. Remember that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years, as we're going to see, seven years as a wild beast in the field. And it was during that seven years that this great king, um, Nebuchadnezzar, became a Christian, that he came to know God and to, and, and to be uh, saved, as it were. So Belshazzar knew better than what he was doing. He knew that these vessels were holy and sacred and set apart, but he wanted to show off to the crowd. And like it is in real life, when the liquor starts to flow, and people start to get tipsy. A lot of times they just start to act the fool. So in Daniel 5 and verse 4, it says they drank wine. And look at what they do as they drank the wine. They praise the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And so as they're praising these gods and drinking their alcohol, this buzz killer happens. 
in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlesticks in upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Can you imagine in the middle of the party, everybody's getting crunk. And all of a sudden, a hand not attached to anything appears and begins to write in the wall. The Bible said, then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him. It's funny, alcohol can't stop your thoughts from troubling you. People often go into alcohol with problems to, to relieve their problems, but they wake up with a hangover and their problems are still there. So the joints of his loins were loosened. The man actually had an accident. And his knees smote one against another. He was so afraid. It's, it's not just that he was afraid. He knew what, what was happening. He knew he was violating God. He knew better. And the long story is that he, his, the, the queen mother comes out. And as he asks, can somebody read the writing? No one could read the writing. The queen mother says, wait, there's a guy named Daniel. This guy can interpret dreams. Daniel is the man. He helped your grandfather. Bring him out. He'll tell you what it is and what it means. Daniel comes out and the king promises him. He offers him a gold chain and a third of the kingdom and a red clothes and all kinds of stuff. And Daniel says, listen, king, keep your stuff. It is of no use. Listen, when the world is about to end, what good is the stuff going to do you? Daniel, Daniel 5.22, Daniel speaking to Belshazzar says, he, first he gives the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar and how he became a Christian. And in verse 22 he says, and you his son, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all that your grandfather went through and how he came to know God. Let me tell you something on Mother's Day. It is, this is one of those days where you must look at the legacy of faith that your family has given you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, as, as Paul is speaking to Timothy, he says, I want you to remember the unfeigned faith that is in you, Timothy. There's faith in you. Why, Timothy? Because of your mother Lois and your grandmother Eunice. He calls them by name to Timothy. You have a legacy of faith. Let me tell you something, young people. Do not squander the legacy of faith that your parents have given you. He said, you knew all of this, verse 23, but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and, you have, and they have brought the vessel of it, vessels of his house before you and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine in them and you've praised gods of silver, gold, brass, iron, wood, and stone, gods that cannot see, that cannot hear and can't know anything. And look at what he says. The last line is very powerful. It says, and the God in whose hand your breath is and whose are all your ways you have not glorified. He said, Belshazzar, you hear praise in wood and stone and the God of the universe you have not glorified. Verse 24, then was the part of the hand sent from him. And this was the writing that was written. And this is Daniel telling you what it says and, and what it means. Verse 25, uh, this is what was written, meanie, meanie, tikal ufarsin. And here's the interpretation. He says, meanie, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. 
Do you know God numbers things? And when it's done, it's just done. Verse 27, Tekel, you are weighed in the balances and you're found what? Wanting. In other words, Belshazzar, you are being judged. Judgment has reached you, Belshazzar. And when God weighed you in the balances, despite the fact that you grew up knowing the truth, despite the fact that your parent poured into you all that you needed to know to be saved, the, the day has come, Belshazzar, when you've got to uh, uh, make an account for what you've done. You've been weighed in the balances, Belshazzar, and you've been found wanting. And then he says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. One of the most difficult subjects as a Christian to deal with is the topic of judgment. You see, and there's a lot of reasons why. There's, there, I, you know, we talked about this when we talked about earlier on about whether or not there's a God and so many of the arguments of the atheists. And, and one of the things that, that many of the apologeticists will say uh, in response to the atheists is that the atheist, one of the thing, reasons people go to atheism and to evolution is they do not want to have to deal with judgment. So judgment in and of itself is a tough topic. There are a lot of people who just don't want to have to deal with the judgment. Let me tell you something, and I understand why. Because I've lived long enough to know that I've fallen many times. I've made many a mistake. I, I look back this morning, I woke up, and the enemy was trying to flash back in my mind some of my past mess. So I understand why folk don't like even thinking about the judgment. But the judgment is a tough topic. And for us at Venice, it's even more specifically tough. The first question we're going to answer today is, is there a judgment? Will there actually be a judgment? What does the Bible say? We've established the Bible as a book we can trust. We're going to look at what the Bible says. The second thing is, what is the pre-advent judgment? One of the most uh, um, challenged of the beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the idea that there is a pre-advent judgment, a judgment that happens before the second coming. And we actually hit on it last week. The third what does it mean that judgment begins at the house of God? And fourth, what must I do to be judged favorably? All right, so we're going to go through. The first one, is there a judgment? So we can go through these pretty quickly. The Bible is very clear on the existence of the judgment. Is there a judgment? Well, here, Romans 14 and verse 10 says, But why do you judge your brother? Why do you set at naught your brother? For we shall all stand, where will we all stand? Before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. I want you to get this church, even the devil one day in judgment will proclaim to the universe that God actually is fair and even Satan himself will bow and, and acknowledge that before his destruction. Every one of us is going to have to face judgment. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 says this, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We will be, every, every opportunity we had to be saved, one day will be played out in front of us and we are going to have to give an account to God. We will not be able to go into eternity and say, you know what, Lord, you didn't give me enough opportunities. I didn't have enough chances. My alarm clock didn't go off and my dog ate the homework. 
Acts chapter 24 and verse 25. As Paul is dealing with Felix, he says, And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled. So it establishes a few things that we'll talk about in a second. But when Paul was dealing with Felix, you know what made Felix tremble? The idea that one day he was going to have to deal with judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We're going to talk about it, because there are a lot of people who say, we at Venice have it wrong because we talk about uh, 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 salvation by works, because we talk about being judged on what you do, but that's what the Bible teaches. And we're going to see how it all makes sense here in a second. Acts 17 and verse 31 says it like this, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained, and that is Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. What is the assurance? That there's an empty tomb. We talked about this a few weeks back. The assurance that God has given judgment to Jesus and that Jesus is going to judge the world is the fact that there's an empty tomb, that he came up out of the ground, gives Jesus the power over judgment in this world. The, the interesting thing, as we've studied in the sanctuary message is, Jesus isn't just really, doesn't just turn into the judge, Jesus is also your defense attorney. Even deeper, he's not just your judge and your defense attorney, he's your substitute. He actually carried out the sentence that I should have carried out. So what do these texts do for us in understanding the judgment? One, it places the judgment after the cross. That's very important. because A lot of people say, you Adventists are crazy because all the judgment happened at the cross. But that's not what he said to Felix. He said, he said listen, Felix, a judgment to come. And Jesus had already, been, uh, had already died, resurrected, and ascended. Judgment happens after the cross. But it also clearly states that there will be a judging of God's people after the cross. And so this is where it gets tough. What does this judgment look like? So the doctrine that really challenges people is the pre-advent judgment. People say, you Adventists are crazy to believe this. How could you believe in a pre-advent judgment? You, you mess up the gospel. But the Bible is actually pretty clear on this. So let's look at what the Bible says. Daniel chapter 7. In verse 1, in the same, talking about the same king, but before our, our, the story we just read, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matter. So Daniel now has the dream. This time it's not Nebuchadnezzar having the dream. He's, this time he's not trying to interpret writing. So Belshazzar, as Daniel is in his bed sleeping, dreams come to him. And this is... This dream actually is um, an improvement on Daniel chapter 2, as you're going to see. So Daniel 7 verse 2 says, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. In prophecy, the water, the sea represents people, so these come out of where the people, the world is very populated, um, and these four great beasts in prophecy, a beast represents a kingdom. And so he says, the first beast was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and, and made to stand up upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. The second one, he says, and behold, another beast, the second, like to a bear 
and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the in its mouth of it between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, the beast also four heads, and dominion was given to it. So, I can, I'll jump ahead in the story and tell you that the first beast is Babylon. It, it was the one that looked like a lion. The second beast is the Medo-Persian Empire. That's why the bear comes up on one side and has the three ribs in its mouth. The third one is the kingdom of Greece. This is how exact the Bible is. It's so exact that it, the four wings and the four heads not only represent how swiftly the, 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 Greek and, the Grecian Empire spread, but it represents the fact that there were four generals that took over the empire after Alexander the Great. It's that precise. And so this one represents Greece. The one we want to focus on is the fourth beast. When we talk about the judgment, the fourth beast is the most unique one. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had, been, and it had ten horns. Daniel says, I, had, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. So Daniel chapter 7 gives us this historic timeline. The fourth beast is the Roman Empire. And the reason it uses iron is because that was the metal of the Roman Empire. The reason it speaks about in Daniel chapter 2, the legs represent the Roman Empire of, this, of, the, of, the, of the image that, um, that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Iron is the strongest metal. The legs are the strongest of the muscles when it comes to being able to crush something. And so his legs were made of iron. Um, and here in this iteration, his teeth are made of iron. And so you get this timeline. That is actually quite exact, and it describes this fourth beast. Uh, Daniel 2 calls him strong. Daniel 7 does the same thing. Iron, it breaks in pieces. It was divided by kings or kingdoms. This is what happened to the Roman Empire. It began to break apart um, and broke into pieces. And so you can see here a pictorial. I, I want you to know you can trust the Bible. Last week, we talked about the book of Daniel, how it was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, um, and it was discovered and known to exist uh, long before the birth of Jesus. Yet, as we'll show you again, it predicts not only Jesus' anointing by John the Baptist, the book of Daniel tells that, says that the Messiah would be cut down in the middle of that last week. And it speaks to the time when no longer, uh, when the gospel would go to the, to, to the Gentiles. It's that exact. You can trust the scripture. And here you get the history of the world, the ancient world found in the book of Daniel. Very powerful. But the question is, who rises next? And what we know that comes out of the Roman Empire is the Holy Roman Empire, a papal empire. And again, I'll, I'll remind you all, my, I'm, my family, that's Catholic, so I'm not trying to do, do anything against Catholics. But I want you to see what the Bible teaches. I want you to understand how deep this is. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8 says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. Right? And what was it about this horn? He had, he had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. 
This power, different from the other ones, is going to speak great things. The eyes represent intelligence, right? But these are not the eyes of God like you find in the, in the, in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel in his vision, the eyes on everything, or in, or, or in the um, ninth chapter of the book of Ezekiel. What you find here are that these are the eyes of man, meaning it is limited in intelligence. Daniel 7, 19 explains it more. We'll come back to this text, but this is the amplified version. It says, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly terrible and shocking, whose teeth were of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke, and crushed, and trampled what was left with its feet. The Roman Empire was a powerful empire. The Roman Empire had all of North Africa, all of the uh, most of Arabia, um, obviously almost all of of Europe. I, when I go to England, I actually go and see Roman ruins in uh, in on the British Isles. There, the, the 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 extent of the empire and the number of people who ru were ruled by Caesar is to this day mind blowing. The amount of literature, art, the 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 roads that were paved because of the Greeks and the Romans. The gospel could never have gone forth if it wasn't for the work that these empires done. The idea of sewage and, and running water, the, we owe all of that to the Romans. It's an incredible empire. And so, Daniel 7 verse 20 says that out of that empire comes this one. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellow. So the shorter one comes up. He says, and I beheld the same horn. Look at what this horn does different than the others. It made war with the saints and prevailed against them. And we talked about this last week. When the, when the Holy Roman Empire comes into play, it is a very, um, the, the religious freedom is shut off. You've all heard of the Spanish Inquisitions and all of these things. It shut it down. We talked about Justinian's code last week. It did. And this was the rise of the little horn. It was a powerful horn that came up and completely controlled. And I want you to get that the influence of this empire during the um, 1260 years is a global influence. How do we know this? Because literally, almost every one of us in here probably comes from a country, or most of us come from a country that was once colonized, and this was its official religion. So it was not just Europe. This was the Caribbean, Central South America, Asia, Africa. This religion began to, to take over the world through colonialism and imperialism. Its reach was complete and far. Daniel 7, 23, then he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. Just like I was saying, take over the world and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And when we do this in deep prophecy seminars, we talk about the three tribes in Europe that are supplanted, and um, the establishment of the papal order, the Vatican, and the power that comes with that. But Daniel 7 verse 25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time of times and the dividing of times. And last week we talked about this in detail to show you the extent from AD 538 
Justinian's code came out in 530 in 33. um the Roman general, um, um, uh, puts away uh, or deals with the, the barbarians, uh, quote unquote, who are invading, and the code goes into effect in 538 AD. You do the prophetic math as we did last week, you come to 1798. Now, what you have to understand, I didn't say this last week, is on both ends of these 1260 years, they're established and ended by laws. Initially, Justinian's code in the beginning, but the Napoleonic law of the French ends it on the backside. Both times, generals set it up and a general takes it down. It was Napoleon's general, Berthier, who ends it in 1798. And we said that because of what we studied last week, 1798 is the, when the time of the end begins. I want you to get this, church. We are in the time of the end. Can you not see it? Can you see it with the wars that happen? Can you see it when people walk into subway stations and just shoot people randomly? Can you not see it when you look at the the, the way that um, you know things like uh, you know I talk about you know Second Timothy chapter three talks about the immorality of the end days, the fact that every year, year over year in America, there are more sexually transmitted diseases uh, diagnosed than the year before. We are in the time of the end, prophetically so, and we'll talk more about that in another another message. So, how do you identify the little horn? It comes out of the, out of pagan Rome. Out of 10 tribes, it subdues three. It's different from all the other ones. Um, it claims great words against God. This is a key one, and I'm going to give you some examples. So this is tough, but I'm going to show you some examples so we can establish something, so we can establish this pre-advent judgment. It made war with the saints. It thought to change times and laws, and we talked about this when we did the Sabbath message. And it would last until 1798, as we just saw. And then it's power. It would be uh, wounded is what the scripture says. But does this fit as I'm saying? Does, is there a power that speaks against the most high? Well, let's see. This is from uh, Lucius Ferris, Ferris, Prompta Bibliotheca. Um, this is one of the, like an encyclopedia. Um, it says, hence the Pope is crowned with a triple crown as king of heaven and of earth and of the lower regions, Inf infernorum. So he says that he's triple crown he's the king of heaven and earth that is a title only given to god almighty amen look at the second one the pope is not only the representative of jesus christ look at what they say he is jesus christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh catholic national july 1895 and remember this is not to pick at anyone i'm trying to show you that the bible is exact the little horn he says here um this is from the history of the councils we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Pope Leo says this in one of his encyclical letters. Um, this is the one from the councils. For thou art the shepherd, thou art the physician, thou art the director, thou art the husbandman. Finally, you are another God on earth. And this is from History of the Councils. So when it says that this little horn would speak against the Most High, this is what it's talking about. And I give you this example, not, not to be upsetting, but to show you that the Bible points this out. You can see it prophetically, and you can trust what the Bible is saying as we move forward. Daniel 7 and verse 8, I considered the horns. This one was plucked up. You see the last line there? And a mouth speaking great things. He says in verse 7 and verse, chapter 7, verse 9, And I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. 
His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. So you have the little horn talked about here. You have this thrones being set up. And then, you says, then it says here in verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And look at this now. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And what does happen next? The judgment was set and the books were opened. The judgment. After this little horn power comes up, the next thing Daniel says happens is that there is a judgment. But then what happens after the judgment? Well, Daniel 7 verse 14 tells you, and there are three key things that if you learn this, you'll understand why no one can tell you there's not a pre-advent judgment biblically. Daniel 7 and verse 14, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So you have this little horn power that ends, is wounded in what year? 1798. Then the judgment, which we said last week, represents Yom Kippur, but the once, as the book of Hebrews says, that started October 1844, after 1798, just as Daniel says. After that, the kingdom of God comes. We were talking yesterday about William Miller and how William Miller never gave up his belief that Jesus would come, even after the great disappointment. Because you can't. The Bible is sure that this is what's going to happen. So Daniel chapter 7 verse 14 describes what happens at the second coming. What happens? God's kingdom is permanently set up. Are y'all getting this? So there's a little horn. There's a seven, there's 12, 1,260 years of persecution. There's a reprieve. What happens around 1798 to give the world a reprieve? In 1776, what happens? This country is born. It's not a coincidence that 1776 is just before 1798 and that a nation comes on the earth that would guarantee its citizens a religious freedom. Now, the country was not born perfect. But the, but the attribute of allowing people to worship according to their dictates made it so that special things would happen in this country. Now, unfortunately, this country may not stay the way it is. I mean, in fact, prophecy says it won't. But I want you to get that there's a privilege, there's a reason God set this thing up the way he did so that uh, the truth could be born and, and, and allowed to thrive. Remember we read last week in Revelation? He read it when, when John ate the book and it was, it was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And then what does Revelation say he must do? Now you must go and prophesy. You got to teach other people. This is our calling, church. So how do we know that this is what happens? It says it. This is the critical order of events. The little horn, there's judgment in heaven, and then God sets up his kingdom. How do we know that there's a judgment happening before the second coming? Because of this order. And we can keep seeing it. Daniel 7, 21, behold, the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came. And what happens before then? And judgment was given to the saints of the most high. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So judgment comes, then you possess the kingdom. Are you getting this? Judgment comes before the kingdom is established. That by definition is a pre-advent judgment, as we shall see. This is what it says here in um. In the New King James Version, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and look at what it means that there's a judgment going on in heaven now. 
a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The little horn, judgment in heaven, God sets up his kingdom. That's If you remember that order, you understand why you can't argue this point. Daniel 7, 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. We talked about that when we talked about the Sabbath. And they shall be given unto his hand until a time of times and a dividing of time. That's the 1260 years that ends in 1798. What happens after 1798 verse 26? Judgment shall sit and shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy unto the end. What happens after that? The kingdom is established. It says it again. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom, Daniel 7, 27, he shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose, and how you know this is exactly the kingdom we're talking about, whose kingdom is a what? Everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey him. The critical order of events again, the little horn, judgment in heaven, God sets up his kingdom. To put it into perspective, of the timelines of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, you can see it here. Each of the kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then it's Europe and, and Papal Rome here. But between Rome and Papal Rome and Europe and the kingdom of God, Daniel 7 gets you in to know judgment happens in heaven. This was a part of why they were able to figure out that in 1844, something special happened. It was when it says that the sanctuary would be cleansed, they thought the earth would be destroyed. But what was actually happening at that time was there was judgment being set up in heaven. Just like Yom Kippur is not just a day of atonement, it is a day of judgment. Jesus, our great judge. You know what Daniel's name actually means? God is my judge. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. So wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand a time of times and a dividing of times, 1260 years, but judgment shall sit. They shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. So here you go. This outlines for you that there will be a pre-advent judgment. Never let anyone fool you on that point. In fact, I'll go back to last week and show you that if you look at the 2300 day prophecy, it ends in 1844, 1798 would have been somewhere around here. So after that time, the sanctuary would be cleansed and this would be the beginning of the investigative judgment that you hear so much about. So the next question we have is what does it mean that judgment must begin at the house of God? Here's what the, a lot of people, this worries a lot of people. I'll tell you what, when I was a kid growing up at Faith Church and they would talk about judgment, I would get nervous, I'm not gonna lie. Because they would talk about it and I still listening to like Run DMC at home and stuff and I'm like, man, I'm gonna get in trouble. But for the Christian, judgment should not bring fear. And I want to show you why I say that. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. For this time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Judgment begins at us because the righteous are going to be saved. What you learn is that when you look at judgment, when you are in Christ, judgment is simply um, literally giving you your ticket to eternity. Judgment is not what you think. Judgment isn't just looking for who will be punished. It is also looking for who will be rewarded. Daniel 7 and verse 22 
says, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in the favor of the saints of the most high God. That judgment, that initial judgment is a judgment that happens in favor of the saints of the most high God. So if you're afraid of the judgment, it's because you don't thinking that you're going to be, um, that it's not going to happen in your favor. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. Here's what Revelation chapter 22 and verse 10 through 12 says. And he saith unto me, seal not the saying of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. In other words, there's going to be a time when probation closes. I want you to get this. There's a time that comes when Jesus steps out of the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary. He takes off his priestly robe and he puts on his kingly robe. There's a time between when that robe comes off and the kingly robe goes on and the time when he gets here, when there's a, when probation has closed, when there's no more, no one left in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary interceding. And when he steps out, it, it basically, and this can also be tra translated, he that was doing unjust, Continue to go ahead and just do it. If you're filthy, go on and continue doing your filth. Because at this point, it's over. Remember what Daniel said to Belshazzar? Your kingdom has been numbered and God has finished it. Every one of us like Belshazzar. The day will come when our name will come up and the time will come and our days, our time will have been numbered and it will be finished. Now, let me tell you something. It'll be too late to try and get ready then. Verse 12, and behold, I come quickly. You see that judgment? He describes everyone's condition. The pronouncement is made, and then he's coming quickly, just like in Daniel. And my, so it's a pre-advent judgment, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his what? As his work shall be. Let me tell you something. You can't, you can't hide from God, you know. I, heard, I, I use this all the time because I heard it from a preacher down south talking about how people try to hide in the no-tell motel. The motel can't tell, but God can. You can't hide from the almighty God. He sees it all. So he says you're gonna just, you can stay in that condition because some of us live our lives trying to fool the folk in church or trying to fool our families. We want to really be in the world, but, but we want to dress up like church. Let me tell you, you're wasting your time. Even if you can convince me that you are righteous and holy, it does you no good if you can't convince God of that. Hebrews 10 says it like this. Verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He says, he that despised Moses' law did without, uh, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Look at what he says here. Hebrews 10, 29, Paul says, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. Paul says, listen, if you think they did bad in the old covenant, 
Imagine what happens to those of us like me raised in this church, knowing this truth. And if I was to walk on the truth of Jesus that my mother gave me, if I just squandered it and, and decided to be a hellion no matter what. He says this, Hebrews 10 and verse 30. For we know that for no, for we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense. He said, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And Hebrews 10 and verse 31 is one of the toughest lines in the scripture. It says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Which leads us to our last question for the day. What must I do to be judged favorably? What do I need to do to be saved? Because one day, the Bible teaches that I am going to have to give an account. Eric Walsh is going to have to stand, and I'm not going to be able to pull my mom up on stage with me. I'm not going to be able to bring up Alga Clark, my grandmother, who was like a saint. I'm not, she's not going to be able to come stand in my stead. I'm going to have to stand on my own two feet before God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says this. For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. And not, not of yourselves, it is the what? Is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walk in what? Good works. Wow, these texts get, they get tricky for some folk. You're saved by grace, then why do I need to worry about my works? So some folk teach, once you're saved, you're always saved. Once I'm saved, I can go back into the club, back to the drug, back to my old life because I'm saved. It's not what the Bible teaches. It says you're saved by grace through faith. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That righteousness is by faith. Abraham had not begun to live right when he met God and counted the stars. And God said, that's how your numbers of your offspring are going to be. And the Bible says that when Abraham believed God's promise, the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. And as you follow Abraham's life, you see Abraham begins to live like someone who knows God completely. He stops lying about Sarah. Right? He, he, he messes around with Hagar. But in the final analysis, he brings Isaac to that mountain because Abraham finally is truly converted. Let me tell you something, church. We are saved by grace through faith. It's not our works, but something happens to you when you experience grace. You can't be the same person you were after you've experienced grace. Something changes and, and now you want to live different. That's why it says in verse 10, you are his workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now that you've accepted him by faith as your savior, something happens in you and you begin to change. By beholding him, you become changed. Look what Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Sorry, it's not on there. It says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What are you going to be judged on? Verse 14 tells you, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Watch this. You are not saved by your works, but you will be condemned by them. You see, if you have the faith, 
that saves, you'll be covered in the blood. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36 and 37 says it like this. But I say unto you that every idle word, this is how this thing got, this, this verse gets me. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. Where do words come from? They come from your thoughts. And it's not, these aren't just the words you say in public. These are the silver lined tongue brothers trying to always talk something into a girl's ear. This is the people whispering lies to their accountant. By your words. How does that work? Well, there's two books. Two books. And the power of God is found in how you look at these two books. The first book, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the book according to their works. It gives you two books, right? There's a book of life. And it's a book of works. Once you understand this, you understand how God deals with us. There's a book of life and there's a book of works. So let's get a little deeper into it. The book of works, Psalms 51 and verse 1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Look at what he says. Blot out my transgressions. Blot them out from where? The book of works. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, God speaking, I am he that blots out your transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember your sins. Did you get that? If you're going to be judged out of the book of works, the Bible teaches that God wants to take what is in that book and blot it out. How do you get there? Acts tells you. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, it says, repent ye therefore and do what? And be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of folk that call themselves Christians that are not converted. And you know, you know how, let me tell you, one of the simplest ways to know whether or not you're converted, how you treat people. I know a lot of folk want to go to the, you don't want to go to these heavy doctrines, the Sabbath and all that. Let me tell you, how you treat people is the simplest way to know whether or not you're converted. My Bible says, Jesus himself says, by this men will know that you are my disciples, that you have what? Love one for another. My brother was had gone out into the world, deep in the world. And at my mother's funeral, my brother, um, um, he, at that time, he was doing, he running nightclubs and, and shows and stuff. And he, he knows all of, met all the rappers and all these people. And, well, you know, he, he tell me how much cash he would leave with. And I said, man, you crazy driving around in Miami with that much money. And I remember for my mother, as my mother was dying, one of the things she said to my younger brother, she said, David, whatever you do, don't wear them diamond earrings to my funeral. Because he had big, giant diamond studs in each ear, like, you know, like the athletes kind of do. And he took them out for the funeral. And I remember at the funeral him speaking and talking. And in the process of that instance, I could see that God was working on him. And my brother gave up that life completely. Walked away from all the money. Today he works, you know, he's educated, works, works a simple job. He's a teacher actually by training. Works in law enforcement now. Gave up all that stuff and chose a much simpler life. Conversion changes you. 
But you got to repent. You got to say, I'm sorry. You got to leave some stuff behind, some friends behind sometimes. He says, be converted that your sins may be what? Blotted out. But let me tell you something. On the day of judgment, when my name is called, all the filth I've ever done in my life, I could be nervous. But what actually happens is that when Jesus comes to, to one of his children, one that has been saved by his blood and his name is called and he says, Eric Walsh, you're up. And they go to take the book of works. And I believe those books are like living books. So when they open it, like you can panoramically see everything on a screen. And my life begins to play. And just when you would worry that your sins would be shown, the screen goes blood red. And Jesus says, no, I've paid for his sin. His sin isn't just forgiven, it is forgotten. That's the power of being a Christian. Your sins will be blotted out. Daniel 12, 1. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be written in the book. Revelation 20 and verse 15. And whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What is the other book? The book of life. So you want to, your works blotted out of one book and you want your name written in the other one. And you don't want your name blotted out of the book of life. Because if your name's blotted out of the book of life, you're lost. Revelation 3 and verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And look at this. Some people say, once you save, you always save. This shows you that that can't be true. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Your name can be blotted out. In fact, Paul says, be careful, lest another man wear your crown. But I will confess his name before my father and before his holy angels. Let me tell you something. You can overcome. You can gain victory. In fact, um, you can see what is going on when you understand that Jesus wants to confess your name before the father. Before the holy angels. Can you imagine one day the entire universe, the tens of thousands we mentioned earlier, 10,000 times 10,000, a, a sea of beings that we can't even see the end of. And Jesus stands there. And I want you to know how special you are to him. He stands before all those people and he calls out your name. Because you trusted him. You had faith in him. You believed on him. He calls your name. I'm have, as it's Mother's Day, I'll have Jackie and Janae sing our appeal song. And I want you to know, I want you to get out of this message that there is a powerful depth to the mercy that God offers you. I don't care how far from God you have gone. Anybody in here. I don't care how far into sin you may have swum. I want you to know that at any time you can call on the name of Jesus. And he will accept you back into the fold. He will, you will, he, you can repent and be converted and your sins will be blotted out. No excuse to be lost. Because Jesus paid it all. The depth of mercy. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.